The cosmic dust that became the Big Bang, that becomes the outer universe, and all of the quantum and atomic worlds kind of within us and within matter, mm -hmm. it's an astounding and mysterious and wondrous fact of our existence. You're listening to The Sill Podcast. Perspectives on Art and Technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 98, Time Trek, Optics, Near and Far. This is another edition of Time Trek, mm -hmm. and we've chosen the development and evolution of optics, which is all about light and refraction and reflection of light in terms of how we see things. Telescopes, microscopes, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. One of those things that kind of happens in reverse, where the theory is developed long before the technology exists to actually create. Yeah, so the theory of the telescope, for example, goes back to how far back? B.C. We're talking the Romans, the Greeks, when they were using spheres filled with water. They observed that the refraction of the light actually gave them other optical capabilities as the light passed through the water. If you're yeah. in the kitchen having a glass of water, you look through the bottom of the glass and suddenly you've got some magnification. Or if you even just put a pencil into a glass of water, mm -hmm. you can see it looks bigger inside, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So really, it's addressing what's there in nature, but was not observed or seen before. Yeah, and what's interesting is that back then, people lost their eyesight. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, there was nothing to be done about it. But at some point in the evolution of glass, spectacles came into existence, but quite far back, right? The original spectacles were developed late 13th century. Amazing. In northern Italy, of all places. Oh, is that right? Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Mm -hmm. Which kind of makes sense because we're approaching the beginning of the Renaissance. Yeah, now, way back before that, though, wasn't there in the Middle East or the ancient Middle East? Mm -hmm. The golden age of Islam. Right, and in that period, there was a certain man, Al-Hassan ibn al-Hitam. Right, who was born in 955 AD and died in 1040 AD. And so what did he do? He was very instrumental, among other Islamic scientists, located in the Middle East, right in what was considered the center of civilization, because yep. you had the European contingent on the west side, and you had India and China developing on the east. Mm -hmm. And the golden age of Islam was when a lot of these scientific theories were developed. And Al-Hassan was a mathematician, philosopher, scientist, who studied optics in a serious way, mm -hmm. including the study of the human eye and uh, examining 
the actual science of the human eye and light entering the eye and so on. And they developed a lot of theories with regards to lenses. Yeah. At the time, though, there were a lot of theories that were developed. They did not have the physical capability of reproducing these objects. At the time, they were using jewels. They were using whatever form of, of glass was at their disposal. Right, right. They still had not developed the actual science. But his studies, he being one of many at the time, he's the most well-known, really was the harbinger of what was to come with spectacles, telescopes, and microscopes. Okay, so the technology of working with glass evolves gradually mm -hmm. over several hundred years. And now you're hitting the Renaissance. And then you get to Holland, where a spectacle maker mm -hmm. by the name of Hans Lippershey Correct. is purportedly given credit for coming up with the first telescopic idea. Well, he's the first man that actually applies for a sort of patent yeah. with the government at the time. Right, and he holds up the two a convex and a concave lens and, and looks through them and suddenly he can see far in the distance. Mm -hmm. So there's the idea, but isn't there a controversy over whether he's the first or was someone else in the Not area? Not so much with the telescope, but because the microscope idea develops almost simultaneously, Yep. There's not an agreement on who was the actual discoverer of the microscope. Okay. But he is credited with the telescope, at least the initial discovery of it. So the other name that comes up is Zacharias Janssen, yes. apparently, who lived in the same sort of area, mm -hmm. Middleburg, mm -hmm. in Holland in the 1600s. Yes, early 1600s. Early 1600s. Yeah. And so Lippershey develops this idea, and then a famous astronomer, scientist. Galileo. Galileo takes this idea and in around, what, 1609 or so? 1609. Right. Lippershey actually makes the discovery in 1608. Galileo learns about it. Yep. And within a year, he asks and receives a rudimentary telescope from Holland mm -hmm. and begins to apply his mathematical skills to modifying it and improving mm -hmm. it eventually from about three times magnification to about 20 times magnification. Right, and he proceeds to take that to the court, to the government at the time. The, the Senate, they call it, the governing body at the time. And says, hey, look at this military application. We can see our enemies mm -hmm. from far away as they're advancing. Mm -hmm. And the government is so excited about that that they give him a professorship, right? Correct. <laughs> a, a nice reward mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And remember, at this point, though, we're only talking about one of three types of telescopes. At this point, it's only a refracting telescope, meaning they're only using lenses. Right. Mirrors have not been introduced yet. That comes later. With that comes later with a reflecting telescope. telescope, which is the second type. Okay, so when Galileo looks through his rudimentary telescope at the heavens... He is astounded at what he sees, right? Well, he sees Jupiter for the first time. And the moons of Jupiter. And he sees Saturn, but instead of seeing the rings, because the magnification wasn't big enough, it looks like there are two kind of wings protruding on either side of, mm -hmm. of Saturn, and he calls them wings. Yeah, because this is very crude magnification. Yeah. And you pointed out that you can actually see that on YouTube? Yes, there's a video where they reconstructed the telescope that he would have had at the time and pointed it at these various uh, heavenly bodies mm -hmm. to show us what he was seeing when he looked through that lens, which would have been astounding for him at the yes. time, right? Box, box. 
What about Copernicus's theory that the Earth rotates around the sun? I noticed something through the telescope on Tuesday, which might prove a step towards even that. There are four lesser stars near Jupiter. I happened on them on Monday, but didn't take any particular note of their position. On Tuesday, I looked again. I could have sworn they'd moved. I've recorded their positions. Now, they've changed again. I see three. Where's the fourth? Here are the charts. Let's get down to work. The fourth must have moved round behind Jupiter, where we can't see it. That means there's a small star revolving round a big star. Jupiter can't be fixed to anything if there's another star revolving round it. Where are the crystal spheres now? that the stars are supposed to be fixed to. Nowhere. There's no scaffolding in the sky. There's nothing holding the universe up. Don't stand there like a stockfish, as if you are afraid it isn't true. I'm not standing like a stockfish. I'm trembling because I'm afraid it is true. Why? What do you think is going to happen to you when you say that there's another sun with other Earths revolving around it? that this Earth is a planet and not the center of the universe. Box, box. Around the same time, only two years later, the famous Kepler. Johannes Kepler. Who's a brilliant mathematician. Yep. Now really takes it to another level again. Uh-huh. And I understand that he went back to medieval text and uh, yes. restudied the human eye and works that... Hassan, yes. Yeah, amazing. From the original... Muslim scientists back from the Golden Age mm -hmm. nearly 600 years before. Right. And apparently he experimented by scraping the back of an ox's eyeball yes. to show that the images shown on the retina is an inverted image. Correct. Hence the beginning of the development, the utilization of mirrors and so on right. to flip these images because that's how we do see. Uh-huh. And then Newton... What does Newton do oh, then? Newton takes it another step again mm -hmm. because he not only looks at the physical properties of the telescope in its current form, he also understands and develops and researches light mm -hmm. and determines for the first time that ordinary white light is made up of seven other rays the of light. The spectrum. The spectrum. And mm -hmm. that's when the words first used, the spectrum. Right. Which is what we normally see, if you remember from your science classes, applying a prism. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right? But what this also establishes is, is that because it's made up of seven other rays of light, these rays of light individually do not bend at the same level or the same time when being looked at through a telescope. So now you have to introduce mirrors and other aberration correctors, because the primary focus at this stage is to bring in distant objects up close. Right. The microscope is a little bit more complex, but with a similar idea, because the problem with the microscope at this stage is that it involves very minute lenses. Mm -hmm, and again, mm -hmm. the technology is not there to refine it to the point that is needed in order to really make it an effective tool. Right, right. So that came later. Yes. But it's kind of working concurrently. Yeah. But the development of the telescope is the primary focus because it's physically easier 
also because of focal lengths, for example. With a telescope, some of the early telescopes were 12, 15, 30, 50, even 200 feet long. Right. Because a lot of the properties to bring in these distant images was effectively gained through the focal length. Uh-huh. Which right. was not practical either, because given the constraints of construction at the time, mm. if you can imagine how cumbersome a 200-foot telescope would have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But these are all evolving matters. And so the mirrors, though, adapted with the lenses is really the critical part of the telescope's development, which Newton had a lot to do with. Mm. Increased exponentially the distance that could be seen Clearly, mm-hmm. is that right? Mm-hmm. That's the, the other part is not only distance, but the clarity of the image, because that's also an issue. Right. Very interesting. So constant refinements. Yeah. And so the telescope that we think of generally is the one that we use to look at the stars or the heavens. But there are other kinds of telescopes that have evolved since then, right? Mm-hmm. Like telescopes that are there to capture invisible energy, right. like light sources. Radioscopes and so on. Yeah. And it's a whole other area, which brings us to modern day. Right. And brings us to the development of early observatories. I mean, Galileo was there in his tower looking up at the stars, and that's a rudimentary observatory. But to build these gigantic telescopes, as you say, mm-hmm. requires support structures, requires technologies for moving the telescope to follow the heavens in certain ways. And the mirrors had to be polished to a very, very fine surface, etc. And these mirrors could take years to actually create 10 tons worth of glass. Right. In fact, one of the great earlier telescopes was set up at Mount Palomar. And uh, Dr. Robert Hale, mm-hmm. Robert Hale was the director of that project. It was a 200-inch mirror in diameter. Right. And they used to call it the great eye. And thousands and thousands of people would line the streets as the great eye was transported from the manufacturing plant to the observatory to be put in place. It was a mega uh, Mega event. event. Yeah. People were extremely excited about what could be seen Mm -hmm. once this telescope was set up. A year on that, approximately? Uh, 1948, it was set up. And then the next sort of big development in observatories and telescopes was, oh, by the way, the guy who was responsible for kind of running the day-to-day at the Hale Observatory on Mount Palomar was none other but a man by the name of Edwin Hubble. Mm -hmm. And that may ring a bell. The Hubble Telescope. Because the Hubble Space Telescope, Mm -hmm. which was not the first, but one of the first, one of the biggest if not the biggest, telescope to be launched into space to avoid the interference of Earth's atmosphere, was sent out into space in 1990 aboard Mm -hmm. the Space Shuttle Discovery. Had its share of problems, though, Well, yeah. First of all, it was a 94-inch mirror. It was 13 tons in weight. Imagine lifting that Mm -hmm. into space. And then when they tried to operate it, to their horror, it didn't work properly. The solar arrays were vibrating improperly, throwing the thing off. It turns out that there was a flaw in the mirror's surface. Mm -hmm. And they racked their brains as to what to do. And luckily enough, at the same time, 1990, as you may recall, was the Iraq War, Saddam Hussein. That's right. And all that stuff, which took the world's attention away from this kind of disaster that cost billions of dollars, $2 billion, in fact. Mm -hmm. 
and allowed the scientists time to rethink what they had to do. What they decided to do was to replace the camera that was inside the telescope. So they had to send another space shuttle up with mm -hmm. people to do a five-day spacewalk mm -hmm. to replace the camera and replace the solar array. And it turned out that it worked beautifully after that. Mm -hmm. And they had images from a billion light years away in space, some incredible images of galaxies far, far away. And in fact, they have one of the deepest looks into space that's somewhere around a billion light years away that took 10 years of photographs from the Hubble telescope pulled together. Like a time-lapse photography almost. Yeah, I think it's called uh, Extreme Deep or something. There's mm -hmm. a name they applied to it. It's one of the, the farthest we could look in the galaxy, Pretty in the amazing, universe. Eh? Absolutely amazing, amazing. Mm -hmm. And Hubble is still up there mm -hmm. doing its thing mm -hmm. after all of these years, since 1990. So the age of the observatory was brought in middle 20th century. Now, today it's easy to look at things with modern technology. We've eclipsed so many barriers with the technologies that we have in terms of development, building, and so on. But can you imagine, when I was doing a little bit of research on this, I was thinking back to the late 1500s, early 1600s, when all these things come into play. And there is a strong religious element to all of this as well. Because yep. for the first time, man is venturing outside the boundaries laid by the church, both with a telescope and with a microscope. Well, and the claim that the earth is not the center of the universe, which was heretical, because prior to this time, the view of the heavens is very interesting. The world is flat, mm -hmm. okay? If you go to the edges of the world, you fall off into a kind of a primeval ocean on either side. And if you look up, what you see is a kind of a curving firmament with stars almost stuck into that cloth-like space mm -hmm. in this big curve. And then above that, you have another layer where the primeval ocean goes up and around and becomes the ocean of heaven. Right. And then beyond that, you have something called the heaven of heavens, mm -hmm. which is the heaven of fire for the Greeks. So interesting, you have earth, you have air, the stars, you have water, the primeval ocean over top of that, and then you have fire, the elements, earth, water, fire. Right. Very interesting. Then there's, of course, the underworld in the earth, and then the pillars of the earth holding everything up deeper down. Mm -hmm. So that was the viewpoint that all of this stuff to telescopic discoveries, Galileo was challenging all of this stuff. Not only challenging, so there's so many areas we could cover here, but just to cut right to Galileo specifically, because he's, yeah. a, he's a prominent player in all of this. Yes. And he himself is brought up on charges of heresy. Yes, he is. 1616, he's accused of being a heretic. He gets away with that. In 1633, again, he's charged with being a heretic. And this time, he gets a life sentence. Essentially, of house arrest. Yes. Because he's they, old at this point. Right. He's so old that they say, well, we're not going to arrest him because of his age, but he ends up living the rest of his life. Yes. Under house arrest. Under house arrest. And apparently, when they took him away, apparently, he was said to have whispered, but it does move. Mm. So he recanted in a way, but then he kind of takes it back. Right. right? And almost 360 years pass. Before, 1992. Right. Before the church, the Roman Catholic Church, actually recognizes him 
Mm -hmm. and pardons him. That's right. Apparently there's a ceremony in Rome and the Pontifical Academy of Sciences under Pope John Paul II officially declares that Galileo is right, saying that the people at the time, the Inquisition, was correct in a way. They acted in good faith, but they were wrong, essentially, Mm -hmm. which is a big admission when the Catholic Church admits anything. Right, that's true. (laughs) That's a world-shattering phenomenon. Interesting, Galileo, a couple of quotes from Galileo. He says... um, Do not feel obligated to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forgo their use. That's an interesting statement. And the other one is interesting. He says, measure what is measurable and make measurable what is not. Which kind of sums up the whole attitude the human race has had to the natural world around us, that this intense curiosity to measure things, to go into things, to understand them more deeply, which is why the telescope and which is why the microscope. Absolutely. And the microscope even, one little tidbit from a religious perspective on the microscope. Yeah. The microscope delved into the unseen. Yeah. The telescope was dealing with objects that could be seen and that man could immediately relate to, even though they were distant, they could be seen. Yep. The microscope is dealing in an area of invisibility. And mm. a lot of it relates back to that religious idea of really trying to understand where we come from. It was almost a way of looking into, maybe we can figure out the particulars. We can learn more about where Adam and Eve come from and the whole Garden of Eden concept. So the church was not open Mm. to this idea of being able to get inside of things, the smallness of things. But you know, the interesting thing about that is that science, the more deeply it goes into the micro world via microscopy, Mm -hmm. and the more deeply it goes into outer space through telescopes, there are even deeper mysteries that are showing themselves to science. Mm -hmm. Which is really what religion is about, is that there's a deep mystery to the way the whole thing works. And for example, there's a really interesting phenomenon that astronomers have discovered in space, in deep, deep outer space, called Boötes, or Boötes, void. B-O-O with an umlaut, T-E-S, void. And it is a void. It's an actual sphere, almost a perfect sphere, deep, deep in space, where when you look into it, it looks like there's absolutely nothing there, and it's surrounded by billions of stars. And it's not a black hole. They don't think it's a black hole. They're not 100% sure what it is. They say there's about 65 galaxies in a a sphere that's about 300 million light years across. And that's like walking across Canada and discovering one or two towns and nothing else on the way across. It's very much like that. And then surrounding that is billions of people. Uh, A mystery that astronomy is still scratching its head over, but it reminds me of the mystery of religion and what that is implying about the world. Like an enigma within an enigma. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Figure that one out. And that's an enigma, what you just said. (laughs) (laughs) All of it's really incredible. And as we said in the beginning, it would be easy for us to go into all kinds of directions and details. Though The whole idea of this discussion is to just illustrate the study of optics and the effect that it's had and the discoveries that were made and the reasons behind them. Yeah, and its importance. What does it mean to go into deep, deep, deep space and see yet more 
stars and galaxies, yet more cosmic space, does that make us feel smaller? It makes me feel kind of small in a way. Mm. It's a very humbling experience, I would think. Well, I guess it depends whether you're looking into a microscope, in which case I feel very big, <laughs> or a telescope where I feel very small. Yeah. No, but it does put me back towards the power and the mystery of our existence. Mm -hmm. That through all of this stuff, the cosmic dust that became the Big Bang, that becomes the outer universe, and all of the quantum and atomic worlds kind of within us and within matter, mm -hmm. it's an astounding and mysterious and wondrous fact of our existence. And if you weren't religious to begin with, you could become religious doing this, discovering these things. I can kind of see why people would look sometimes to religion simply because it's too overwhelming to try and figure it out for oneself. You yeah. Know, you're almost looking to something else to explain it all. The difference with religion, though, is with religion, you're to have faith in this invisible mm -hmm. something called God. But with science and technology, what we're doing is we're not having faith we're asking questions. Right. We're extending our senses, our eyes, and our hearing, and all these things to kind of grab more of the world around us mm -hmm. and ask these questions directly without the idea of having faith necessarily in some invisible controlling deity. Right. So in essence, a lot of these creations were to extend the senses we already have. Yeah. And especially the telescope, without which... There'll be no space exploration, no moon landing, no theories about mm -hmm. the Big Bang. None of that would exist. Mm -hmm. And the same thing on the opposite end, which is the microscopic world, which we didn't get into too much, but yeah. more of the same. The difference being, again, lens size, understanding convex and concave lenses that affect the way we see things. Yeah. Anything else to be said about uh, telescopes and that moment in history? moment that continues. We became bigger than who we are. Mm -hmm. And smaller. And smaller at the same time. That's the interesting conundrum, isn't it? Bigger, mm -hmm. yet smaller. Mm -hmm. We'd really love to hear back from you. Text message, voice messages. It'll all be available on thesillapodcast.com. Yeah, yeah. Till next time. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production, available at thesillpodcast.com.